Hi, this is Alan Olson, and welcome to American Dreams. My guest today is David Checkets. David, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Alan. It's uh, really a pleasure to see you and to be on your program. Thank you. Well, David, as we spend time together, uh, for the listeners today, before we 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 get into the topic of what you've been doing in recent years and uh, also what you're up to now, um, give me a background of how did you get to where you are today, uh, areas of specialty. Let's start at college. Uh, you, you have a very unique path. It was unique. In uh, college, I was intrigued with two subjects, law and business. And I really struggled as to whether I was going to go to law school or business school. I actually did better on the LSAT than I did the GMAT. But uh, more and more, as I looked at my own father and uh, someone who had tremendous impact on me, my who would would become my father-in-law, I was intrigued with business. I went to business school and coming out of business school at BYU, I I got the the dream job. I was hired by Bain & Company in Boston, a management consulting firm. And uh, with my family, my small family, we moved to Boston in 1981. And it was there that everything changed for me. I was suddenly working with and consulting big corporations in New York City and Boston. And, uh, and uh, it was all about competitive strategy. How do you build a company that can really compete? And how do you build a culture? And how do you reposition products and pricing and, and every aspect of business? And I got a tremendous a sense that I could actually take apart companies and and reposition them for growth uh, over those years at uh, Bain and Company, working with the the best minds from business schools all over the country. It was while I was there that uh, one of our clients at Bain decided they wanted to make an interesting acquisition acquisition. They wanted to buy the Boston Celtics. And because the Bain partners knew that I had played basketball at BYU and and was really into uh, sport and professional sports, I had this relationship with Danny Ainge, who was drafted by the Celtics. And that just, they just couldn't believe that I knew him. But I'd played basketball at BYU with his older brother. So, so they asked me to supervise and do the work, and uh, it was it was just a dream. I, I put together this case team of four or five uh, really outstanding uh, young consultants, and suddenly we were off to to pull apart the NBA and and to look at the economics of how it worked and why some teams were constantly in the hunt for a championship, and there were other teams that never were. What what made the difference? And and that's the question that the partners of our firm wanted answered. What what is the difference between a a, a, a championship culture franchise that was just constantly in the hunt? What 
the Chicago Bulls of the 1980, the 1990s, the Los Angeles Lakers of the 1980s. So, you know, that, that continually won titles. And then there were teams like back then, the San Antonio Spurs or the Cleveland Cavaliers that just were never in the playoffs. San Diego Clippers, just to, just constantly failing to be competitive and to draw fans. What, what was the difference? So in six months, we pulled apart the NBA and I came to know a man that would change my life. His name uh, was David Stern. And uh, sadly, he has left us now. He passed away in the last few years. But David Stern, New York lawyer, uh, deputy commissioner of the NBA, when I met him, he became my mentor and my dearest friend. And really, he took every step in the next uh, 20 years that I took was with his blessing and, and guidance. And he became a terrific friend and mentor. So, so it was when I was finishing that work, we made a bid for the Celtics. Our bid was uh, fell short compared to another bid that was really uh, not expected and, and we thought overpriced, but, but it, it didn't work. And, and David Stern said to me one night at dinner in New York City, he said, now, you don't talk like you're from Boston. Where are you from? And I said, well, you, you won't believe this. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, just outside Salt Lake City. And he said, well, in all of this work that you've done on the NBA, what, was, what did you conclude about the Utah Jazz? And I said, I think it's the worst franchise in any sport. And Alan, th three weeks later, I was named president and general manager of the Jazz. I was 27 years old. I, 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 you know, I'd never run a lemonade stand, frankly. Um, and that was a, that was David's doing. He called the owner of the Jazz, a fellow named Sam Battistone. Sam flew to New York the next week, invited me and my wife to come down to uh, New York and have dinner with him. And at the end of our dinner, he offered me the job. And that's why I say it, that all changed my life. And um, we moved back to Utah. I took on this, this orphan franchise. Uh, you know, you, isn't it funny that there's a team in New Orleans called the Saints and a team in Utah called the Jazz? Have you ever thought about that? But that's the reality. That is uh, that that's, um, that that's a good point that you made there, and uh, you know it's interesting. I guess it was really uh, you you made a tremendous turnaround uh, during those years with the Utah Jazz. Fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Stockton and Malone, and we had uh, Mark Eaton. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fun going mm -hmm. on there. Um, so. Uh, it was a great time. It, it was a great time. So, so you you stayed with the jazz for some period of time, and then then what? Yes. So after uh, eight seasons with the jazz, and and really doing all the things that I wanted to do with the franchise, we started jazz youth basketball to to get kids involved early on, and 
in becoming admirers of professional basketball because they they loved BYU and Utah, but they didn't they didn't love the professional ranks. Um, we did we created a summer league to have have people actually see how college players would play against NBA players. So they would see actually the big increase in the quality of play among the pro players. There are just a number of things that we did to to create a different message uh, to the people of Utah. But the biggest thing we did was in 1984, with the 16th pick in the draft, we drafted a young man named John Stockton. And then in 1985, with the 13th pick in the draft, we drafted Carl Malone. And those two years, along with Thurl Bailey in 1983 and Daryl Griffith, who was before that, and Mark Eaton, we really developed a great team. And it was with that team that I then went out to try to find capital uh, to keep the team in Utah because the team had lost an enormous amount of money, was deeply in debt. And I, I just lost sleep trying to, because I wanted it to stay there in Utah. And I had grown up as a child with the Utah Stars when they won the title in 1970, I think it was. And, uh, and I, was, I was watching when the, when the Stars won the ABA title. And I knew that Utah loved basketball the way that Indiana did and that the Jazz belonged there. So I went back there for that reason. That's why I went back there. And um, so I, I, I went to everyone who had any money there and finally ended up with a local car dealer who owned two franchises, Larry H. Miller, and then went to First Security Bank and presented him and said, will you loan him $8 million to buy half of the team? And Larry Miller had a net worth in those days of $2.6 million. First Security Bank took the franchise as the security, loaned us $8 million. We paid, paid off our bank loans. And Larry took on that debt and allowed us to operate as a franchise should. And we built revenues Revenues back then were less than $5 million, and a few years later, we were uh, pushing 50. And, and then when we moved to the new arena, it became a $150 million business, and today it's about, about $350 million business for someone who paid $1.6 billion for that same, that same asset. Well, that's not, so, that's not so a bad return. Were, those were... Those were really great days in the 80s um, there in Utah. Just um, there, there were some really lean times where I, I could not cash my paycheck because I knew we didn't have enough money in the account. And if I cash my paycheck, then Adrian Dantley's paycheck, our highest paid player, might bounce. I remember those days thinking I couldn't. I had to tell my wife we we don't have an there's not enough money in the bank, um, so don't don't deposit this. I hope you'll be able to deposit it next next uh, month, perhaps. But so you you eventually ended up 
uh, moving on from the jazz and and uh, out in New York City, and you were still associated with basketball, though. Well, David Stern, this mentor of mine, hired me to come to the NBA and build NBA International, and the and the goal of that, Alan, was to his vision was to so, sell eight franchises in Europe actually to expand the NBA to a European um a Europe a set of European teams in in towns like London and Milano and and uh, Madrid and Munich uh we had the eight the eight towns including uh in Rome um we had them all set out and and the goal was to sell eight franchises so I was constantly traveling over there and it was a uh, it was hard because Europe didn't know that they needed the NBA and finding investors and meeting with investors and talking about putting up that much money to actually build an NBA team in their local town it was interesting but i could see that that was that was going to be a 20 year project and and i missed competing i missed building a team to to compete i missed those scores every other night where you either win or lose i had become addicted to it with the jazz and in 1988 the jazz played the lakers in the second round and should have won that series i mean that's how good we had become the game the it went seven games we lost in game seven and so the lakers moved on and won the title but we here we were a really young team with malone and and Stockton and Eaton, and all the guys you named, Thurl Bailey. And we had put Jerry Sloan in, in, in charge of the team. Frank Layden stepped down in December of 1988. We, we put Jerry Sloan in, and I knew he was going to be a really good, really good coach. So I just missed that competition, and I couldn't understand why the New York Knicks, the, the, team, the team that I admired as a boy, they. They just couldn't get it together. And so when Dick Evans, who ran Madison Square Garden in those days, showed up uh, on my doorstep here in Connecticut and said, it's time for you to come, come and take over the Knicks. And that was like another dream. Um, Although I sat on the front row of my first Knicks game next to the... um, to the owner of the Chicago Bulls, Jerry Reinsdorf. And Jerry's a great owner. And he turned to me and he said, hey, Dave, I I don't know if I need to say this to you, but New York is very different than Salt Lake City. And I said, is that, is that really true? Is that, is that, you know, I acted like I didn't understand, but I did understand. And it was, I've often described walking around in New York running the Knicks, Alan, as walking around in a giant blender. You're, but you're the person in the blender, and and somebody's going to turn it on, and you're going to turn to liquid. You're going to get cast out, and that's how it is the, in in New York. You just don't know how long you can make it because the press, the fans. The demands on you are just so significant. But but I was 
president and general manager of the Knicks for three and a half years. We went to the NBA Finals in 1994 and uh, lost to the Houston Rockets in seven games. But I was I really ran that team for a full decade, and we were in the playoffs every year. And you know, it was a great great time for my kids to to see a completely different place and. They loved the Knicks, and uh, and then I was over the Knicks and the Rangers and Radio City when I became CEO of Madison Square Garden in nineteen late nineteen ninety four, and then I was in charge of everything there. So it was it was a great decade. So many memories: the NBA All Star Game in ninety eight. The NBA Finals in 94, again in the Finals in 99. I just wish we could have won one title. And I actually blame only one person for the fact that we didn't. And that was Michael Jordan. He just had a way of uh, taking it away from people. And he did that to me. I would have four championship rings, if not for that. Well, those were certainly the days, uh, you know, the 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 legendary Michael Jordan, and uh, you know, and 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 moving from there to to current, I guess right now we're in the middle of the NBA playoffs, but it is amazing to watch these guys. The the sport seems to be uh, played under different rules today. Uh, you know, watching some of the the games go on between Boston and. Um, and, and uh, in Miami today, and then the Warriors and uh, the, the Mavericks, and you know, uh, it's uh, it, it really is half entertainment, and then, uh, but it is an art. It is an art. The way that those games get so close, you know, coming in. It is, it is, and you know, it's been surrounded by by the music and by the the player introductions, the lights go out, the spotlights are on. We, we've turned them into stars and uh, very popular, you know, pop culture stars. They, they just are admired and for good reason. They're incredible athletes. And you never know until you're sitting down there how big they really are. Last night, I had dinner with one of my players for many years, a player named Alan Houston. And Alan was a tremendous, you know, two guard, a great shooter from Tennessee who played for the Detroit Pistons. And then we signed him as a free agent and brought him to New York. This, is, this guy's a guard and I'm six foot five and he, I'm looking up at him, you know, and it just, you forget how big they are. Patrick Ewing. 7'2", Charles Oakley, 6'11", Carl Malone, 6'9", and 280 pounds. And it is muscle. That guy, that guy played all of those years and very rarely missed a game. He was, he's, the doctors told me when we brought him in for the first time and he was 19 years old, they said, he's never going to get hurt. They they showed me the x-rays and they said, look at the bone structure on this guy. It's not fair. I mean, he's, 
He is, he's quite a physical specimen and he showed it all those years what, for us. Was Jason Kidd, I, I, I love these guys. Was Jason Kidd part of your organization or no. he was in that time frame, no, but I didn't know uh, if he ever made it over there. So, okay. No, he, he never made it to, to not, not while I was there. Uh, he played in New York, played in New Jersey. Um, he took the New Jersey Nets to the NBA I, finals. I remember the uh, New Jersey, but I didn't know if he happened to land over New York. It seemed like no, okay. but I hadn't. You know, I know him really well, and now he's done a great job taking a young Dallas team and getting him into the Western Finals. Although it looks like the like Golden State's going to kind of sweep them into oblivion for a while. <laughs> well, so I, I want to bring this up. A couple of years ago, uh, Rick Welts of the, the Golden State Warriors called you up. It, you know, the, the NBA is a, a pretty close, tightly knit group, and the Warriors were working on a project, and they invited you to come back and, and, and visit them at the Chase Center, but you were doing something over in London, England. How, how did you get over there, and what were you doing, and... And, uh, you know, what, what held you up from getting over to mm. the Chase Center? Well, Rick is a longtime friend. I mean, I've known him since he was president of NBA Properties, and then he went to the Phoenix Suns and eventually on to Golden State and uh, just has done such a great job there. But I couldn't, I couldn't come to the Chase Center because um, the uh, Latter-day Saint Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, Saints, a uh, church that I have been devoted to most all of my life, um, asked me to go to England and to supervise the efforts of what then was supposed to be 800 missionaries from around the world. Actually, they were from 54 different countries. These young men and women, uh, age 18 to 25, who would come to England to, in an effort to do good. I mean, to, to teach people about Jesus Christ, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, uh, the restoration of the church. But in addition to that, they had this special desire to do community service. Uh, to help people, to help re help re refugees. We opened friendship centers. We had a visitor center where complete strangers would come in and, and many times in need of help, and we would do all that we could to help them. The friendship centers would help refugees find places to live, write resumes to try to get jobs. We did everything we could do to, to help these people. And then when we weren't doing that, we were teaching people from all over the world. We, and as a result, we found people there that uh, truly wanted to devote their life to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ and following him. And we would, we would bring them into the church and we would teach them and we would, uh, they would participate in a baptism, which was a, was really a, a beautiful way to devote your life to Christ. And these people would, would turn their life around, Alan. And, and uh, so I was called the mission president. I worked 24-7 with my wife 
um, which is the first time we've worked 24-7 together. But over three years, we saw so many miracles and received so many blessings in our own personal life by seeing people devote themselves to Jesus Christ. And very different than anything I had done professionally before, but I've never worked harder um, for absolutely no compensation. I've never worked harder or had uh, more fun than I did in England. You know, it's interesting as as we go through life, and we're of course we're in these times where there's such rapid change in the world of, of polarization of viewpoints. Uh, there, there's all humanitarian crises happening in many many places, but. Um, you know, it had to be a sacrifice for you to step out of what you were doing on a day-to-day basis and and go into a, a voluntary position like that. Um, how did you uh, how did you manage to to stay focused on what was in front of you uh, versus being distracted with all the other things that were happening in this world today? Well, it's it's easier than you would think, Alan. And the, the answer to that is fear. <laughs> I mean, all of these people who were there under our direction from various places in the world, and I, I knew that in the case of, all, of every one of them, there was, a, there was perhaps a mother, father, grandparents, siblings who were praying for their safety and well-being every day and praying for their happiness, praying for their success. And just that responsibility to make sure that they were going to be with us anywhere from two years, 18 months to two years. And their safety, their protection in a, in a city that in many ways is kind of always on the edge, London. You know, it's been the target of uh, terrorism and, and all kinds of difficulties through the years. But, but that's what weighed on me. And that's why it was easy to work because I, I needed to keep track of them. I wrote to them every week. They wrote to me every week. I would interview each one of them um, over a six-week period, and then it would that six-week period would start again, and I would interview yet again. So, to to be responsible for their their physical and mental and emotional and spiritual health was truly the hardest job I've ever had in my life, and I was most of the time sleep deprived and exhausted but i just felt so blessed at the same time i I can't quite explain what it's like it's um one of my one of my dear friends matt holland who himself was a mission president put it this way and i'll quote him he said i would this is something i would never wish on my worst enemy but I would like my best friend to have the experience. Those are words to live by. Now, yeah. you yeah. 
came home about a year ago. Bring yes, us up to speed. What are you working on now? So I have, uh, I came home July 1st of um, 2021, and I was glad to get out of the COVID environment. COVID, you know, changed everything we were doing in a big way. Um, but it was, it was nice to get home and to get with my family again, because I had not seen them in 20 months. We, we thought they'd all come to, to England, but obviously during COVID, they were unable to. So I missed my my family, my children, my grandchildren. I have gotten back in with all of them and and uh, love that relationship. Uh, six children who are all married and uh, almost nineteen grandkids now. So um, wonderful to be with them. In addition to that, I'm working on two really important projects for me in London. So. Um, one is a, a company called Gravity Media, which is a sports television production company that does the U.S. Open tennis tournament, the Australian Open, um, a lot of European football. It's a it's a, actually a production company that moves in and produces all of these live events. And I am an owner, shareholder, and and member of the board. I'm also on the board of directors of a. Uh, English Premier League soccer club. I love the game of uh, soccer or football, as they would call it, and I love the English Premier League. It is it's it's the best football, soccer football in the world, and uh, it, it's it's a brutal game. People don't, most Americans don't understand it. It's a it, but it is the world's game. It's a beautiful game. So I am a director of a, of an English Premier League club, and then um, I'm working on helping my son, uh, who has started really an outstanding company, and I I want to put him in a position to do his best work. So I'm raising a capital round to uh, put primary equity into his business, and then to take out his private equity fund partners. Um, and to step into that role through a special purpose vehicle. The company's called Roan. This is, this is a, an example of Roan right here that I'm wearing. And uh, Roan is a men's activewear business, uh, but it's, it has a much higher purpose than that, which is to address men's wellness. You know, men are 30% more likely than women to to commit suicide, men have extremely difficult uh, um, mental health problems. There's a lot of depression and anxiety, and they don't talk about it. So, so while Roan is a performance uh, apparel company, and that's how it was created, uh, we aspire to be a men's wellness brand and to both create and to curate the best products for men and to encourage dialogue and for them to get help when things get dark in their lives and to really address those things and to get the help that they need. So uh, Nate, our son, and his brother, Ben, are the key officers of the company, but Nate is the CEO. Ben is the chief marketing officer and really the brand voice. My son-in-law, Karis, uh, who 
uh, went to Stanford Business School, an outstanding young man. He's uh, a member of the board and has really been additive to the company. So, so we will, with the $80 million that we'll end up raising, you know, we'll capitalize the company properly and, and encourage its growth, which is at about 40% a year right now. And, and uh, we want to, we want to get that company ready for some sort of liquidity event in the next couple of years. Well, that- so doing all of that and, and uh, having a great time. Well, it sounds like you have a full plate, uh, but you're very capable and also being surrounded with family. What a, what a blessing that is. It is a blessing. I, uh, I couldn't be happier or feel more blessed about that. Our, our family and uh, the love that we share for each other. I, I don't know that there's anything that could ever exceed that in terms of priority, but also just just blessings. It's uh, I really am intrigued by the next generation of the family and and what they're thinking and what they're doing. Well, Dave, I appreciate you being with us today. Well, Alan, I hope uh, this is what you needed. It is. Uh, I love the name of the show. I love the fact that dreams really do come true. And I, I am, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had and will still have to, to uh, accomplish great things. Like I say, I feel like now at this point in my life, my job is to create an environment where others can do their best work. And in some cases, that's my children with Nate and Ben. In some cases, it's with our missionaries in London. And in other cases, athletes, you know, how do you create a culture where they can do their best work? I'm really intrigued by that. That's, that's what gets me up every day. All right. I've been visiting here today with David Chekets, uh here on American Dreams. Thanks for being with us and join us next week right here on this station.